Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Michael, I'm not going to act like we didn't just talk for almost an hour off air, but it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yeah, my name's Michael Woodywis, and uh, I'm the author of um, several books about organized crime, beginning with Organized Crime in American Power, moving on to uh, a book called Gangster Capitalism, um, United States and the Global Rise of Organized Crime. And more recently, uh, Double Cross, The Failure of Organized Crime Control. Can you explain a little bit about what organized crime is? I think I told you off air, I came across it because of the mob connection with the CIA and things with the assassinations on Castro. And I, I'm very new to this relationship. You know, we would I think most people probably think our government would never work with mob figures. And then it's kind of like, well, when does the relationship start and what exactly is organized crime? Yeah, that, that's quite an interesting question. I mean, if you Google organized crime definitions, there's a website devoted to definitions of organized crime. There's a hundred, no, there's 200 different definitions of organized crime, mainly divided between those um, commentators who, who identify organized crime with people. You know, organized crime equals the, the mob or mobsters, etc. But there's another um type of thinking that suggests uh, that policymakers and, and you know people who want to get involved about organized crime should think about it in terms of activity right illegal activity uh, illegal gambling drug trafficking you know various forms of extortion and fraud that's organized crime if if you if you want to see it from a, how it should be seen from a policymaker's perspective american policymakers have made it about uh, particular kinds of people, mainly Italian Americans, um, and uh, you know that that gets that that means government. All government has to do is fund the FBI and um, local and state police forces, and that apparently they say is the answer to organized crime. But if you think about it as activity, it's got to be a much more joined up government approach, and you've got to reconsider laws prohibiting gambling, which America has done. I think anyone in America can gamble now if they've got a, uh, a computer, access to a computer. Um, but reconsider prohibitions of drugs, which um, you know, many many folk would argue enriches corrupt people. The prohibition of drugs, rather than yeah. You know. With the labeling of just people from Italy, like mob figures from Italy, or people that are into these activities, like illegal gambling and sorts, do you see that as like an exemption? of them being able to now do those types of things like if they do it it's not considered organized crime or it's not considered in the, like not the italy people but the, the fbi agents the government aspect of things because i feel like everyone's susceptible to corruption but labeling organized I, to me organized crime just sounds like anything that's planned 
that's obviously a crime. You're organizing it in a sense, like you're making a whole, ch maybe you have a, a chalkboard and you, you draw little lines and show people what you're going to do. If you're going to do a heist to me, that's kind of organized crime. But if it's like specific things like gambling or other things that are not supposed to be going on under law that are happening, I don't think it's a certain individual that's prone to do it. I think probably government officials and others have been caught doing it at some time. And I kind of see that labeling of history as that's organized crime. And this isn't, it's kind of like choosing so you can do it, but they can't. Yeah. I mean, uh, in the 1960s, in before the organized crime control act of 1970 was passed, the, the government put charts up suggesting organized crime was something organized like the army or like a corporation with a, you know, a corporation CEO at the top and then, layers of uh, management and that's not how any type of organized crime operates not not the italian american families they don't operate like that but the um governments do like to see you know do like enemies and they, they enemies that they could understand and they could understand this hierarchical idea this idea that organized crime is run by a centralized hierarchically organized one single organization and um, you know, most most research says that's complete nonsense. You know, when, when career criminals don't operate like that, they don't have administrative structures. They don't um, have bureaucracies. In to, to have real power, you need bureaucracies, really, and they don't have them. So, when was the the term coined? <clears throat> uh, in the eighteen nineties, uh, a reformist organization called the New York Society for the Prevention of Crime said that they were organized, an organization set up to combat organized crime. And that's the first institutional use of the term organized crime. But they meant, or by organized crime at the time, they meant the protection of um, gambling joints. Gambling was prohibited in New York and most of, most of America. Protection of gambling uh, joints by local politicians. And they thought local politicians protection of gambling joints and brothels by local politicians, mainly in the Tenderloin area of New York City. And um, that, 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 that was the understanding of the term organized crime until the 1950s and the Cold War. And then American government agencies and Senate investigating committee decided that organized crime should be associated with a relatively small group of Italian-American gangsters and um, set about to kind of show that organized crime was run by the mafia. And um, and they they pitched the idea that, all, that the mafia was a monolithic organization, as, as if they all worked together, uh, you know, whether in New Orleans or New York City and Chicago, etc. No evidence for that, but they kept on saying it, and that helped them get the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970 passed, which gave the FBI and other agencies immense power to bring down the bad guys. Did anybody raise the flag or raise the question that all these crime families, they're all different, that they're all different, they're, they fall under different categories, I would say, and they don't have alliances. Like they had to know, notice that there was just too much of differences between some of these crime families to say that they were all under the same umbrella, or was that just an easier way for them to be able to get funding to go right after these people? Well, Joe Albini was um, the first to sort of um, 
challenge the mythology of the mafia, not the myth of the mafia. The mafia guys do exist. You know, there's no doubt about it. But the mythology of the, of the mafia is that the mafia is a single organization controlling organized crime. Albini challenged it in a book in, published in 1971 called Genesis of a Legend. But he, he, um, he got some publicity for it, but he was challenged by a TV talk show hosts with, uh, with lines like, well, you're an Italian-American. Doesn't that mean you're part of the mafia? <laughs> you know, that, and uh, he, he, he fades that kind of um, criticism coming from total ignorance of the topic of organized crime. Was the media in on it? Like, was the media also kind of publicizing the influence or the scarcity? Much like if you look at communism and like kind of the rooting for communists, the media, newspapers, so many different media outlets, it seemed like were brainwashing people to think that communists were a bad thing. Now, I'm not saying gangsters were a good thing. I'm just trying to get the historical record on like, was a lot of this like media tactics, like, oh, if we keep publishing an article of like Al Capone shaking a baby off a balcony, just something stupid like that, where it might not even be true, but people would see that and go, oh my God, they must be horrible. Cause I mean, I learned about in the great depression, I think Al Capone was feeding people's uh, soup, if I'm not mistaken. And when I started kind of looking at this this mob it's kind of like a i wouldn't say a battle for admiration but a bower uh, a battle for respect which is the aspect of people rely on their government to take care of a lot of things and it's really really weird or backwards to them or the government when you start seeing that okay now these people have more trust in the mob because they're helping out in tough situations and in for from the mob perspective that's an advantage for them i mean if they can gain the people's respect they're more than likely going to look past any events or any activities that they might be up to so i would have to think a lot of this would be like trying to make sure people label these mobsters as bad figures or certain individuals so you could stop their influence yeah i mean lo local gangsters have always got a, an incentive to be nice to the local community you know and that's you know al capone did did it in chicago um i'm sure angelo bruno did it in philadelphia um and that that's what they do you know if they they're running nightclubs etc they um they, you know they, they want the local community that they want the neighbors to look kindly on them but I think uh, to to you know to address your original point, um, journalists and editors are invested in simple stories. You know, they 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 thought they had a simple explanation. The mafia, America had this big organized crime pr problem, mainly to do with illegal gambling and drug trafficking, and and they liked the idea that one organization was primarily responsible for the problems of illegal gambling and and drug trafficking and they they believe the federal bureau of narcotics and other agencies that that uh, you know suggested lucky luciano for example ran uh the international drug traffic which is complete nonsense how could you possibly how could anybody <laughs> or any organization any single organization run the international drug traffic drugs come from all over the place and uh, every ethnicity on earth is involved in some way in that kind of traffic, but they they like a simple story, and to say the the mafia killed someone, um, in a sense that means they actually don't know who killed someone, you know. And uh, but but it's uh, you you don't uh, you get don't get stories published or people interested if, if you don't provide people with an answer, and um, 
uh, yeah, and there, there were exceptions. Murray Kempton of New York Review of Books wrote significant articles which um, looked at the testimony of Joe Valachi and pointed out that, that Valachi was was in no in no position to um, uh, explain organized crime in the whole of America. Um, I don't know whether you you know about the Valachi story, but Valachi was. Um, Caught on drug trafficking charges in the in the late 1950s, um, there was an attempt on his life in prison, and he started talking to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Then he talked to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, several historians think he was coached by the FBI, but he became a you know the first significant mafia turncoat, and he he gave um, televised testimony for. Um, Senator John McClellan's investigative committees um, televised, a big deal at the, at the time. But um, historians and journalists like Campton who looked at the testimony and tried to make sense of it, said it didn't make any sense. It's full of contradictions. Um, he was billed as a kind of leader of the mafia, but any, any investigation into Joe Valachi's criminal career suggests he, he was a guy with a baseball bat that smashed up sweet shots. He, he was at that, that level. Uh, he was a New York gangster, New York stroke New Jersey gangster, who did that sort of thing. But the government pretended that he could explain organized crime in the whole of the United States of America, 50 states. And uh, the government said, he said, well, you know, he started calling it, uh, and the FBI started calling it the Cosa Nostra, you know, because Hoover had said the mafia doesn't exist. So uh, all very sort of, you know, doesn't the evidence for the mafia being a hierarchical, centralised organisation simply didn't exist. But by repetition, people believed it. It was like that. I think if you look like I want to ask you this is when did the historical record change? It seems like when I was a kid, it was on and it's shown in movies that, you know, the mafia and the cops or the government had this war that was feuding as back and forth justice or being a vigilante. And then I think with now that I'm, you know, at this point now and obviously the past couple of months into the Kennedy assassination, kind of learning about this type of stuff, I started realizing I don't think the relationship was actually this battle versus good and evil. I think it was. Did they have to reach out to some of these low-level mob figures to get informants or get something to try and invade and, you know, take down these um, operations or these families from the inside? I mean, it's really easy to label a head honcho of a mafia family and say, he's the guy we have to get. We need all the funding possible to be able to get that guy. Well, it's not like getting a low-level guy. It's going to be easier to get a low-level guy than the main guy that they're going to be protecting. So you're now just creating an endless war. Whether that person's to blame or not, you're literally just going – it's going to take you so many people and so much resources to try and get that figure and stop whatever you're blaming him as. And that's why – like. But when I started looking through a bunch of government documents, I was noticing a lot of these mob figures were also giving information, which made me start to seem like, was it a better relationship to get a working relationship, the government working with the mob, not in something huge like 
assassinating Castro, but something low level like, hey, you keep your stuff away from where we don't see it and we don't hear about it and we'll, we won't bust you on anything. And maybe sometimes we have to do something that might have to get published in a magazine just so we get attention. But don't worry, we'll give you a slap on the wrist and we'll have you out by like a next week or something like that. I, I don't know if that's too movie like or if that's really what we're kind of understanding now about the historical record between the government and the mafia. Yeah, I think for me that that is too movie-like, okay. really. I, I think um, t- to take, um, you know, ma- mafios, I were, were um, low-level mafia guys were offered offered deals, and uh, essentially, uh, you know, do you want to go to prison for thirty years because we got this, 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 and this on you, or do you want to help us and you walk away with two, you know? The two years imprisonment in a in an easy in an easy federal prison for example and if you and if you talk we're offer you a new identity you know it's illustrated in the movie goodfellas for example uh that sort of idea and and there's and and, and it was an effective way of uh taking down significant gangsters like um john gotti in the 1990s and before him Tony Salerno, Tony Salerno, Tony Duxcarellos. It, it worked to an extent. It, it helped to put aging gangsters in prison. Um, but it, that, that hasn't uh, controlled organised crime in America. It's, it's just, you know, they didn't control it in the first place. So putting them in prison might be the right thing to do, but it wasn't such an effective thing to do. Um, what I, I, I would argue that the government needs to look at, um, uh, you know, the prohibition of drugs. They've already given up on trying to um, prohibit gambling in the United States. You know, anyone can gamble in the United States now. They've given up on their efforts to prohibit gambling. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, the FBI uh, launched a big investigation into gamblers, I think, in Detroit. And uh, the court case sort of just fell apart at the end. And that's almost the last significant federal effort against illegal gambling and uh, and the so-called mob. Um, Why was there such an attack of illegal gambling? Sorry? Why was there such an attack? Like, why was gambling illegal? I'm sorry. I'm just to me, that just sounds foreign because I've always known you had to be over the age of 21 to gamble. Yeah, well, no, that that wasn't the case until at least the 1970s. After prohibition of alcohol was repealed, and you could suddenly buy uh, alcohol sort of um, legally from 1933, the moralists and the politicians and the newspaper editors tended to uh, switch our attention to gambling as as the great evil in America. Gambling was demonized, was considered in the same way that drugs have been considered um, in more recent decades. So slot machines, for example, were called um, you know devil machines. Uh, that that uh, because they led particularly young men into a life of you know moral depravity, and uh, there was a big campaign to prohibit gambling, and this is. Um, particularly in the 1950s, a Senate committee said, well, we can't legalise gambling because that would um, give a lot of money to the so-called mafia. And uh, that and other arguments were used against the legalisation of, of, of gambling. 
the gambling began to be, you know, the final efforts, as I said, were in the early 1970s and they collapsed. So again, in the early 1970s, um, federal police officers uh, have admitted that, um, you know, to keep the stats up, they would go after a couple of Italian, you know, uh, American bookmakers, call them the mafia and justify, just, you know, that justifies their existence. You know, that's, there's always a tendency for, um, you know, going for the sort of low hanging fruit um, in these matters. Um, so gambling since the 1970s in America has become normalized. You know, you can uh, go to casinos, I think, you know, without too much of a drive, I would have thought. And uh, and you don't even have to do that because you can um, use work computers to gamble. <laughs> I used yeah. to work at one, so. Oh, yeah, did you? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's become normalized on, on, on Native American reservations, etc., Obviously, Atlantic City was legalized in the early 1970s as well. So it, it's but the, the attention switch to um, demonizing drugs after the failure of gambling prohibition. And uh, Nixon launched his war on drugs in the late 60s, early 1970s. And you're still at war <laughs> with drugs today. Yeah. Do you think that with all this demonization, like demonizing the mafias being Italian people or demonizing the uh, gambling or de just demonizing these things, you start to realize that they're just giving it more of a reason for people to want to break the law to go do them? Like, you, I mean, you saw, I mean, I think that's what Oregon went by. Oregon now has decriminalized all drugs, so you, you can do whatever. I don't necessarily agree with that. I just think that, like, they, I, I don't know if that's a good solution to it, but I mean, Drug running is still going on. Gun running, I can see, as being a major fear back then as well, too. And, you know, looking for trafficking and all these types of things that have been, and I'm not saying it should be legal. I'm just saying, but demonizing it so much. I mean, the idea that the mafia is this one evil force and the government is trying their best to combat this evil force. I feel like they're also, whether that's true or not, if the media is reporting it like that, you're now creating an outrageous fear of the mafia, which is going to cause you to be like, well, you better go handle it. And now you have more pressure applied onto you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would argue that demonization is frequently counterproductive because you give a kind of an outlaw status to activities and to, um, you, you make, um, you make drugs, uh, you know, like, like cocaine, heroin, uh, marijuana, uh, forbidden fruit, you know, and, and you, you know, 18 to 25 year olds or young people become more interested in it. Other, you know, in the, in the Holland, for example, it's, uh, it's no big deal. Any of this, you know, it's um, a kind of, um, you know, they, they, they waste very little police time on that issue. Uh, they haven't outright legalized um, drug taking, but they low priority, I think. They, they think there are worse things going on in the world than people smoking joints and um, popping pills, etc. And I would argue 100 Americans have been trying to prohibit these drugs since 1914, the Harrison Anti-Narcotic Act. That's over 100 years, and they haven't got close to prohibiting it. In fact, the price of cocaine, for example, has gone down a lot since the 1970s. I would agree with you. I, I think a lot of these organizations that get built up and they're kind of told to be like this great thing, like the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, 
are they really that successful? Like what's their track record? Have they done what they have been told or what they were supposed to initially do? Or has it just kind of still somehow worked its way into our society and they've kind of failed? And does history tell about the failure? Probably not. Hmm. Oh, I would argue that the, the low hanging fruit um, approach or the kingpin approach to organized crime control has been horribly counterproductive. And since the 1980s in particular, you, you have mass incarceration in the United States of America. Uh, and any decent ethnographer would tell you that organized crime networks are more likely to be in prison than outside prison. And so networks develop within the American prison system. Um, and they are, and people come out of prison. <laughs> you know, they they come out they come out of prison, in many cases, better connected and more wised up to participate in, for example, the the trade in illegal drugs. In, in nineteen, in the early nineteen eighties, I interviewed the um, counsel for the Kaufman Commission, Reagan's Commission into Organized Crime, and I asked him, um, you know, to talk about the issue of prison gangs in America. And I thought that was a legitimate question because um, his, his, you know, the Attorney General of the United States had said that prison gangs were an emerging organized crime control group. And I asked him this question and he went berserk. Uh, he, he looked at his watch, he looked at the door, you know, get out of the room, essentially. And the only way I could say in the room was just to ask about Chinese uh, gangsters, you know, something foreign to America. So if you think of all the prison gangs being a problem, it becomes an American problem. And this is a, uh, you, you know, you're not really allowed to, you, you weren't allowed, still to a great extent, not allowed to associate prison gangs with organized crime, but they are, you know, they shoot people, they trade in illegal goods and services, um, which fits any definition of organized crime. You notice that a lot through history that everything has to be an overseas problem. It's because someone came over here or it's because someone, something from somewhere else was brought over here. It's never seen as a domestic problem. It's never seen as like it's us. And I think that shows faults of the government if it was, or if that shows fault of whoever's in power, whoever's in political office, that shows it looks bad on them. Um, and I mean, I don't know if that I, that's my opinion. Maybe you have a different one than that. But I, I think there's a record to kind of back that up. Everything got blamed back then of being, you know, I mean, even now things get blamed for being an overseas problem or some type of situation like that. It's, I don't know if it's taking full responsibility, but it's just kind of accepting that obviously you're susceptible to the same problems. It's not just something that comes from somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I would date the beginnings of organized crime in America from 1789 because that's um, you know nations should own their problems their own problems and currently they're 300 million americans are roughly and and they're, they're not uh, they're organized crime is not something run by a particular ethnic group or, or ever was there's um, a range of ethnicities and racial groups in america and all of them at one time or another have been involved in major criminal enterprises so, yeah, I mean, the, there's a, um, a tradition of politicians gaining um, political capital by suggesting that America's problems come from abroad. I was recently, you know, blaming Mexican drug traffickers for America's um, desire to consume illegal drugs. Uh, and I would argue that, that the problem is the demand for 
illegal drugs, which, uh, um, you know, the, there's more profit to be made from supplying and demand for prohibited goods than legalized goods. I'm all in favor of regulating and controlling and, and reducing the harm of activities rather than making up conspiracy theories that suggest foreigners are to blame for all America's problems. Well, even bootleggers back when the prohibition was happening, those are technically, I wouldn't call them mobsters, but they're organized crime people. They're ones that are making plans and going to distilleries that they have hidden away, running from the cops. To me, that's an organized crime. Definitely. And um, the guns came in. You know, there, there were a lot of guns available in the 1920s, partly because a lot of soldiers had come back from fighting in, the, in Europe, the First World War, and hand in all their machine guns, for example. Um, the, um, the violence, um, the, um, the sort of saloon years, the year when, when alcohol was legal, weren't particularly violent years. The violence only came into the alcohol trade once it was made illegal. And uh, that, you know, you, you have, for example, gangsters like Legs Diamond. He made a living out of hijacking booze on its way from the coast to the New York, for example, speakeasies. Um, and the folk who were transporting legal booze had to hire gangsters to protect their shipments. So you have sort of, uh, you know, that, that's a reason for many of the kind of shootouts between these different types of gangsters. Also, the, you know, as you'd expect, turf wars, you know, the, um, you know certain gangsters would only, you know, would, would try and protect their territory from other gangsters, leading to, um, I think, over a thousand deaths in the in the New York gang wars of the 1920s. But the interesting thing for me is there are far more violent deaths involved in the illegal drug trade today uh, than tend to be, mainly because of entrepreneur, entrepreneurial gangsters shooting each other to defend their goods or to defend their territories. What is the biggest concern for the government when it comes to an illegal activity that the, uh, the organized crime might be doing? Um, would it be more concern of drugs or would it be more concern of guns? Drugs, definitely. Um, yeah, I happened to be in Jamaica a couple of years ago and um, talked to the Minister of National Security in Jamaica, and he was terrified at the extent of guns being shipped over to Jamaica. Um, and, and he made the point that um, if he asked for help combating the drug trade from the United States government, he'd get help. But he asked for help combating the trade in, in illegal guns, he would get no help or minimal amount of help. And uh, I mean, this, this you know, the uh, Jamaican gangsters, um, you know, have, have a history of violent activity, but they're using guns that were frequently made in the United States, as are the Mexican drug trafficking guys. Um, you know, many of the arms they use to shoot each other made in the United States, smuggled over. I mean, quite quite an easy process, really, to buy guns in, say, for example, Texas and ship them over to the Mexicans. Um, you know, that's so, yeah, they, the priorities are um, messed up completely, really. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're failing to stop Americans uh, taking pills and sniffing powders 
um, and, and failing to stop the trade in illegal guns. And uh, this, this does um, benefit some drug traffickers. This might at the be expense of others. This might be speculation, but the, is it the preconceived notion of a doped-up society? There's a lot of that, like with uh, Nixon's administration with this war on drugs. Like there is this kind of two aspects of like controlling drugs or making it more of a business entrepreneurship between the government. But then there's also this fear of a doped up society, which is why, I mean, you could say that was why pot was banned as well too. Um, but there's this fear of like, people are going to be going around like zombies or we're just going to be weak to communism. If communism ever steps up its doors. And do you think it's that preconceived notion of why there's this always focus on the illegal aspect of drug trafficking? Well, the the, uh, the issue has been uh, manipulated. I think you mentioned Nixon. Nixon's um, people put about the myth that uh, American GIs in Vietnam were addicted. You know, they were, essentially the reason we the Americans were losing in Vietnam because of an addicted uh, army. Um, a historian has looked at this. Um, I think uh, Jeremy Kutz, um, Kutzmarov has looked at this, a book called The Myth of the Addicted Army. There wasn't any evidence you know, of large-scale addiction. There was being at war is a particularly horrible thing, and there, were, there was drug use, but there wasn't, uh, you know, mostly it was recreational drug use without um, too many GIs becoming addicted, but they put about the word that the American army was being weakened because of... Um, you know, because of heroin in particular. And then they put a, put about the idea, which I think you, you, know, you were referring to, that um, unless we clamped down on drug use, uh, we'd have a kind of zombie addicted nation. And there's no evidence that that would happen. And, um, you know, obviously people do get addicted to dangerous substances. The countries that uh, are a bit more sensible in their responses, um, you know, work you know, want, want drug addicts to be within society rather than excluded from society. And, um, you know, we try and sort of um, de-emphasise uh, trying to control personal behaviour and, um, I mean, in an ideal world, world um, put more emphasis on controlling harmful activities. Um, the uh, industry that comes to mind at the moment is the fossil fuel industry. You know, there's a lot of illegal activity going on there, for example. And, and uh, when we're talking about the existence of the planet, isn't that more important than trying to trying and failing to stop young people taking drugs? Well, if you look at even uh, what is it, Timothy Leary, um, and it's the all-out hunt for him. Um, I mean, was that I've talked to both sides of that argument, why he needed to be, you know, he was handing it out basically to everybody with, you know, he had this idea of set and setting, but he also wasn't like, you know, sitting with somebody and letting them experience it. It was more about here, take this. And then he was running around kind of preaching this and the drug culture. I mean, there was a whole attack against drug culture. Was that rationalized or was that now considering everybody to be organized crime individuals um, of now spreading this drug out there? I mean, as much as they made it illegal, they make it sound like it is this type of horrible sin. And these people are gangsters or something like that. When was the first ever public statement about organized crime? Like, did you see a certain time period where there was more f 
focus and more talking about it to news and press and more coverage on it? Yeah, I, I think uh, the beginnings of the Cold War, late 1940s, early 1950s, that, that, that's when uh, a federal government agency, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, put about the idea that Lucky Luciano controlled the international drug traffic. And complete nonsense. You know, they're, they're just... Um, Luciano's career has been studied in quite uh, quite a lot of detail, and there's no real evidence that he was involved in the drug trade at all. But the idea that one person or one organisation can control the international drug trade—you know, the drugs come along with them um, today. They come in with sort of containers, or they come in on planes. That, you know, there are all sorts of methods of um, entering the United States of America. But yeah, 1950s was the, the crucial decade in establishing in government agencies, government investigative committees, the Keefauer Committee and the Cleland Committee, and then the President Johnson's Crime Commission of the 1960s. They put out the idea that America's illegal gambling, drug trafficking and labour um, racketeering issues are all the fault of one organisation, the Mafia. You know, they put about the idea that Jimmy Hoffa was controlled by the Mafia, and the Mafia did this, and the Mafia did that, as if it was one single organisation, whereas, uh, you know, I think if you watch the film Goodfellas, that gives an idea of uh, you know, the kind of reality of gangster life, really, a, a world of chaos and betrayal, rather than organised bureaucratic decision-making, which I think the Godfather gives that impression. Now, when we talked, you mentioned this earlier, but when we talked about these families like getting together or this idea that these families are getting together and communicating, where did that stem from? Was that just to easier point the blame at one head honcho at the seat of the table? Because I know about, I think it's a meeting in Appalachia. I'm not too 100% on that, but is that like the one time that's ever happened and they just kind of ran with it? Or I know these mob families had their own feuds. I don't know how you justify a mob killing if there's two different mob individuals that get into a turf war. Like how did the press cover that? Oh, they're all under the same guy. It doesn't make sense. So you start looking at the separation there, but still the public kind of receives it as these mob families and even in movies kind of depicted as well too is that they all have their heads of their families sit down at one table together and have this association that goes on well there were definitely efforts of you know from um uh, mafia groups from uh, across the united states not totally across the united states you know there was there, there, there were 70 plus Italian American gangsters that did meet in Appalachia in 1957, and um, you know it's going to be a barbecue. And they were, you know, as far as we can tell, they, they were like business people getting together as uh, business people do. You know, you, can you do this favor for me? You know, can you advance my career in some way? That that sort of. Um, but it, it was put about that um, the fact that they met meant that they organized crime in the whole of america you know there, there's a jump frequently with conspiracy theories that frequently jumps from the um uh credible to the unbelievable and there was there was a jump they, they um the participants in this um uh, in this barbecue you know tried to run away most of them were caught and tried and no real useful information resulted from 
uh, the Appalachian meeting, it did bring the FBI more in line with other federal agencies and the federal, the FBI began to um, put about the idea that uh, it was never the mafia. We call it the Cosa Nostra and we've been aware of it for years and we're on to it. And the FBI started putting um, agents shadowing Sam Giancana in Ch Chicago and began a focus on New York and Chicago gangsters in, in particular. So, you know, 1950s, you know, Cold War, it's kind of the, the, the atmosphere in the Cold War uh, was um, Americans were quite rightly nervous at the time. They were, you know, there was a prospect of nuclear Armageddon, much more so than even today, where you have the kind of Russian situation. But uh, people genuinely feared nuclear Armageddon. They, they feared communism. Um, with some justice, you could say that um, uh, the, the Soviet Union had um, infiltrated the Manhattan Project, I think, for example, and it speeded up their development of, of their nuclear arsenal. But the point I want to make, this is a, a time of paranoia when people were, during such times, people are more likely to believe in conspiracy theory. Um, and there, there were two big conspiracies during this time. There was the communist conspiracy, uh, and it was thought that uh, communism was monolithic, as if the Chinese and the Russians were in cahoots with each other, which wasn't true, but people believed it. And the idea that organised crime was a monolithic, hierarchical organisation, a single organisation. And both, um, both took root in America and both resulted in um, arguably anti-democratic laws to combat them. I, we got, I have just when we say that word conspiracy, I'm just like there's so many things that get labeled a conspiracy that turned out. I mean, working with the mob at a point would be called conspiracy back then if you told somebody. And then now we know now that there was a relationship there. But I mean, the brainwashing aspect that the government kind of I don't know what that was for. Was it to it to protect their citizens? I guess you could say, but I don't see any protection that happened. I actually see things get worse. I think you mean my culture. You mean um, about what? brainwashing do you mean mind control experiments with mind control drugs no i mean like just advert good advertising can be brainwashing in a sense oh I mean, sure yeah if you put up an article saying hey it's the italian mafia that's organized crime what about the hatred that's now going to go to anybody that's from italy that's exactly what people are going to start viewing it's like the same thing of a communist was labeled mostly it was just russians back then or people that had that type of view but then there was an aspect when indonesia well there's communists over there too wait there's another type of communism oh yeah and then you saw them try and cover to say yeah there's another form of communism it can be this as well too and then you got the fear of vietnam the the chinese people you see all that kind of start to go where you see this divide start to happen and it's just from a headline it could just be something as simple as that and the government looks at it like we're preparing you or we're bracing you for it's propaganda i mean that's brainwashing is propaganda so i mean do you get to see that when they start labeling italian figures or the mob being these uh, organizations from italy do you see hatred for people from italy do you see people start to be fearful of people from italy i, I think by the time the, the idea of the mafia controlling organized crime became established in america italian americans had become assimilated within american society and there was a distinction made between italian american gangsters 
and the honest law-abiding Italian-American communities. There were distinctions made by you know, some of the more sensible conspiracy theorists saying, I'm not, you know, writers would say, yeah, some of my best friends are Italian-Americans. I'm not blaming all Italian-Americans. I'm just blaming the bad guys. So there were distinctions uh, made. And um, and I think I think it can be said that quite a few young people in the in the Italian-American community actually quite liked the label. You know, we are the tough guys. You know, they 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 went with the label to some extent. And uh uh certainly uh I mentioned Joe Albini, who was the first uh, academic to debunk the idea of organised crime being a single organisation. He talked about networks between Italian American gangsters. But networks is not one big organisation. It's just, you know, you talk to somebody who can do your career some good. You know, it's that that kind of networking that happens, and, and that's a reality. That he was accused by it, at least some in the Italian American community of. Um, you know, saying, look, this is all we got. You know, we've been abused and discriminated against. You know, we've uh, the, the idea that, you know, we are tough guys is all we've got. So he was attacked for that, um, for exposing the kind of mythical nature of it all. Is the history of organized crime, like the study of it, like what you do and what others do, is that a controversial, are there controversial aspects of it? I don't think so. There, there is such a consensus today that organized crime in america used to be and the emphasis on used to be used to be controlled by the mafia well, the consensus of opinion is that the feds became good at combating organized crime in the 1980s and they uh, had successful um, court cases against the so-called new york commission you know the five families got together uh, uh, kind of quasi-government um certain amount of evidence to suggest they were right you know there, there were there were uh, there was a kind of quasi government sort of trying to sort out difficulties between different groups of mafia uh people uh because of that success and the success in uh, putting john gotti away in 1993 the consensus is that the feds got good at um taking on the mafia beat the mafia and have got the have got the situation of organized crime in america under control that, that it's now a marginal peripheral phenomenon but i would argue it isn't a marginal peripheral phenomenon you know just just look at the um uh you know organized criminality amongst mortgage brokers that led to the crash economic meltdown in um about 10 years ago as as evidence of organized crime except it's white collar organized crime which is not considered to be organized crime even though it's criminal and it's organized <laughs> yeah the reason i asked that was because you said conspiracy a lot and i'm just trying to because i think the main narrative is that if you look at what the government did in the 90s and putting away certain mob figures that people would call that was the success of the government to handle organized crime because that's what they labeled organized crime but mm. organized crime, I would say, has been broadly labeled as the wrong thing, which is just individual mob figures when it's really just an aspect. I mean, people on Wall Street could be doing organized crime. There could be any assets. So when you look at like what the aspect, I would say, of organized crime is, it's just anybody 
it doesn't have to be a certain figure. It doesn't need to be a certain group. It could be anybody that's doing sophisticated illegal activity um, and getting away with it or performing it. Mm. Well, certainly, I'd also bring corporate crime into this. You know, corporate crime as late as, sorry, as early as 1949, uh, Edwin Sutherland came out with a book called White Collar Crime and said, look at the record of corporations. Um, it's persistent. Crime is persistent. Crime is uh, crime is organised in these. And he, he mentioned the names of uh, Standard Oil, for example, Sears and Roebuck, and and, and uh, he backed it up with um, court cases. <clears throat> um, he was told by his university he couldn't say that. He was told by his publishers he couldn't name names. He couldn't name Standard Oil. Uh, I think you can uh, if you you can get um, the the names now because. Um, Ten years ago or so, a new edition of this 1949 book, White Collar Crime, came out with all the names put in, including Standard Oil and Sears and Roebuck, etc. Um, but you're not um, essentially not allowed to call corp corporations uh, organised criminals, even though there's a lot on the record of organised criminality within corporations that um, can be punished, but punished with uh, kind of um, relatively small um fines for example flea bite type fines and um yeah and, and the, you know the, there is a leniency towards corporate organized crime and um and the, you know this contrasts with the mass incarceration of mainly poor americans who are you know as as we're talking that more than two million Americans behind bars, and they're not actually going to come out. Some of them are going to come out, you know, rehabilitated people, but others are going to come out as um, as part of criminal networks. Well, the situation now, I would say, is that we've been more conditioned to think that gangs are the ultimate threat to society compared to the uh, massive amount of corruption that goes on in many vast big corporations. And we've just kind of glossed over that. I think if you would have said 50 years ago that these corporations are doing illegal activities, someone would say, oh, that's a conspiracy. But the way that the direction and the amount of transparency or the amount of investigative journalism people have done have really been able to expose the relationships with big tech corporations and so many other oil corporations into politicians' pockets. And there's been more of a viewpoint on that. I think that's why you get more criticism when people start bringing out scandals or reporting things on politicians. But I also see the opposite end of that, where if it's a certain news station that says something about a certain politician that might be from the other side, then more people are going to be like, that's just their viewpoint. And that's just, or that's Fox or that's CNN. And then it's not taken at face value anymore. There's no association for an actual crime being broken. And I think it's because for the longest time, we've only associated crime with certain types of individuals, um, incarceration populations, anything of that sort that seems like there was a, a reason that was brainwashed. Like I said, it was convinced into us by media, whatever, that this is the figure that is the face of organized crime, or this is the figure that is the face of gangs. This is what gangs look like. And then that causes us to only look at those as the ones that are doing the corruption aspects when we should have been looking into our institutions. Yeah. And I think you about corporations, um, a lot of the problems stem from the late uh, 19th century when the Supreme Court um, found that uh, corporations should be treated as persons, individual persons, 
and um, and I think to date this this still, still applies. But uh, individual persons, even gang leaders, can't afford a kind of army of lawyers that corporations can employ to make sure that uh, when there are scandals, that they will not be punished that much. They might be exposed, they might be shamed, but the profits keep coming on, coming in. And the, um, the lobbyists sort of work day and night to make sure that laws do not uh, hamper profit making. Do you think that all this stems from just the beginning of organized crime and we've kind of headed in this weird direction where it might be taking a turnaround now? Like I have to feel like the history books, this doesn't seem like this has been something that's been always told, at least from the history books I had when I was in um, school. They never told this aspect about what they were labeling as organized crime. They just and even movies today still pin it as these vigilante individuals. And you kind of look at what the aspect of just gunning after a certain type but then it's hypocriticism or it's being a hypocrite i mean half the people that are calling out organized crime are also doing the same exact activities but nobody's talking about that type of stuff and now we have more like hoover's a good one hoover had you know he said said the mob didn't exist or he said your states should handle the mob and it shouldn't be an fbi investigation thing he was also betting at the track too so, I mean, is that hypo being a hypocrite or is that just an aspect of like, it's okay if you can do it or your government can do it, but not the certain figures that you're labeling organized crime? Yeah, I, I actually would have to argue that Hoover was being perfectly legal betting at the tracks. It, it was legal to go to the horse tracks to put money on horses. They were fixed races, though. That's not legal. Oh, well, that wasn't legal, but it was legal to actually put bets on. But the... Uh, the corruption came in with off-track bookmaking. Off-track bookmaking was illegal. People wanted to put bets on, even if they couldn't go to the track. And it kind of did, you know, the, the law about that discriminated against people who couldn't afford to go to the tracks to bet. And there was, a, um, you know, off-track bookmaking was considered to be a major organised crime sort of moneymaker. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, th th there's... There's mythology about the mafia. There's a certain amount of mythology about J. Edgar Hoover. Um, I think he uh, he was, to some extent, um, you know, you have a federal system and the cities and the states should bear most responsibility for crimes committed within state borders or city borders. Um, bookmaking, for example. Uh, most New York police officers knew who the bookmakers were. They weren't arrested because of systems of payoffs. That was local corruption. And uh, J. Edgar Hoover emphasized that this is a federal bureau of investigation. And uh, you know, we, we have jurisdictional limits here. Um, he could have done better. And in 1963, he chose to join in with the idea that the mafia controlled organized crime in America, except he called it the Cosa Nostra to save face. And um, he was supportive of the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970, which gave more powers to federal police and federal prosecutors. Do you believe the whole it's not in my jurisdiction thing? I mean, as much as I know about Hoover being wanted, wanting to be the world police, in a sense, involved invasion into Latin America, uh, COINTELPRO with the black. I mean, people would have labeled the Black Panther Party as an organized crime, but you start to see how they kind of radicalized the Black Panther Party. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you don't mind, if I can step back and um, as you mentioned history books, if history books mention the beginnings of organised crime in America at all, they probably look to the Prohibition era, the violation of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. But they'd have nothing to say with the violations of the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitutional in the southern states between uh, the end of uh, the end of the Civil War, 1865, and the 1950s. That was a 90-year period, 80, 90 years, where white supremacists um, ignored the 13th Amendment. Uh, there were... Um, Peonage was a cancer in many states, southern states. Peonage is a form of slavery. They ignored the 13th, they ignored the 14th, and then they, you know, they disenfranchised African Americans. So that to me is far more, and they were supported by local officials, magistrates, southern police officers, um, you know, for an 80, 90 year period. And that's labeled as a kind of Jim Crow era that should be labeled as an organized crime. Yeah. Well, KKK was, wasn't labeled as a, KKK Sorry. wasn't labeled as an organized crime thing. It should have been. KKK should have been labeled as organized crime. But what was labeled organized crime, which I think if you look deeper into, shouldn't have been labeled as that, was Black Panther Party. They were labeled as organized crime, which was like now organized crime. That term, especially in the seventies and eighties, I feel like just turned into this aspect of anything that went against what the government's narrative was. I mean, they radicalized. Uh, with COINTELPRO, a lot of these Black Panther parties, and they worked with police as well, too. It's the Fred Hampton, um, Fred Hampton's death. You could look at that. I mean, 120 shots raided into his house, one shot fired from a Black Panther, and two shots to the main guy, uh, Fred Hampton's head. And the news didn't cover that at all. They had to open up the house with all the bullet holes in it and have all the citizens in the community walk through it and see what the cops did. But nobody, there was no justice in that aspect of things. I think that radicalization, I mean, more people would assume that the Black Panther Party was terrorists or something like that, much like the Weather Underground. And I feel like with those, you kind of have both different sides of things, but things that were going on way longer than that, the John Birch Society, the KKK thing, that should have been labeled as organized crime. They were doing way worse activities in a sense as well, too. Well, in between um, 1865 and 1870, the KKK, the original KKK, killed tens of thousands, not just of African-Americans, but um, Northern white Americans who came down you know, as teachers, for example. They didn't want the African-American or the newly free men and women of the South to have education. So with education, you can uh, you know, advance yourself. You, know, you, can, uh, you can read job adverts for a start. You know, this idea of superiority. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's a whole hidden history there, which I try and write about in, in uh, you know, in, in my books. Do you look at when it comes to a lot of those KKK members that should have been labeled as, you know, obviously what they were doing is illegal, but that they should have been labeled as a problem and the government should have handled that. But a lot of them had ties with government or ties with police. It was that weird aspect of things. I mean, even if you look into the Kennedy assassination, the John Birch Society gets mentioned a lot. But that Dallas police at that time, there was a lot of corruption in that KKK activity type thing. Yeah, and going back again, but um, go to YouTube and look up Birth of a Nation, this um, first Hollywood e epic, really, 1915. The KKK are depicted as the heroes, uh, the good guys. Um, you, know, you know, sort of um, 
running to the aid of sort of white settlers or you know white rural white developers and uh, you know the, the whole film is about um the redemption of the south for white supremacy as if as if it's a good thing and uh, so the opposite of terrorists they are the redeemers they are the um civilizers and uh, um and the kkk were um you know in the 1920s significant all over the united states um five million or so members <clears throat> in the 1920s collapsed quite rapidly because of the um evidence of <clears throat> criminality within the clan hierarchy itself but they don't they're not mentioned in organized crime histories at all why do you think that should change though i mean if we looked at i think everyone has a, a better understanding of what the kkk and the horrors that they did now but that is something that still isn't really mentioned a whole lot in the history books. There's more radicalization, I would say, in a lot of these new underground movements. Um, activist situations would get labeled more like that rather than this thing that obviously had connections and ties with this idea of superiority, um, but the connections and ties with police departments and government organizations as well. So I feel like the history books should be teaching that the KKK was as worse as any organization that they want to label anything as. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the best books about the Reconstruction era KKK is called White Terror, uh, and it certainly was White Terror, but I would also argue if you look closer at their activities, they were gangsters, they were, they were entrepreneurial, they, they um, you know, they operated illicit um, distilling um, enterprises, um, horse stealing enterprises, you know, this is before the age of the motor car. You know, they stole horses and uh, uh, and sheriffs, um, you know, the local authorities were in cahoots with them as well, making it undeniable organized crime. <clears throat> Do you start to notice that we've kind of been desensitized or unaware of kind of the threat, the real kind of threat in a sense of what we should be late like if you can't like there's a double standard aspect of things if you're going to label one thing as organized crime what are you labeling it? illegal activity like what trafficking like guns like any of this type of stuff but then the other side's doing it but where nobody was talking about that there was kind of like this okay it's only this specificness do you think that's it's kind of desensitized us to what we should be aware of that a crime's a crime no matter who commits it well, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think governments have a an interest in in suggesting that they've got everything under control. You know that uh, the organized crime was a problem in America, but now it isn't. But I, I think America, you know, other countries as well, other nations, and the international community to wake up to the fact that organized crime is part of every nation's development. It's not a threat to. It, it's how we became who we are really um, and that's why i'd emphasize you know the white supremacist organized crime um certainly in, in the reconstruction era and afterwards uh, it helped you know it it uh, helped in the construction of a nation and if you accept that organized crimes are part of a development of a nation you you have to hopefully that one day there might be a commission that sort looks at priorities and you know should we be spending all this money trying to stop people um consuming pills and uh, sniffing powder up their nose 
uh, or take some of the resources from that uh, into dealing with organised criminality in the fossil fuel industry, for example, which is going to be uh, disastrous if they don't uh, control it in some way. You'll find a lot of similarities between those KKK members and the people that happen to be the monoliths in the big oil companies. Mm, yeah. And um, and this used to be understood in America, at least until the 1950s. I, I think to some extent, some people understand it. But um, certainly Franklin Roosevelt's uh, administration, Harold Ickes in particular, said he'd never met an honest oil executive. It, you know, he'd met hundreds of them, and not one of them was honest. Uh, and uh, but but you have the, um, you know, if organised crime is successful, essentially historians and journalists don't really know about it enough. So we have to put together fragmentary evidence, as uh, uh, as uh, I think you're going to try and do with the Kennedy assassination. Lots of fragments of evidence, but a lot of it uh, has been coloured by sort of different political agendas i think do you think like do you ever get like a, a document from do you ever file a foia request for certain documentation or do you ever come across a diary that kind of brings insight into a little bit more of maybe something you're learning about organized crime i think um one of the documents that um <clears throat> i found most uh, useful was looking at the nixon um Watergate documents, you know, you know, unlike most uh, most presidents, they finished as presidents and their uh, government officials go through all their papers to make sure there's nothing embarrassing because of the criminal investigation of Nixon. They just froze the documents. So you've got the kind of rawness of um, history there, you know, sort of less, uh, hadn't, you know, the ugly bits hadn't been taken out. But one thing I noticed was um, one of the first things Nixon did was send out special advisors who knew about organized crime to do to look into the federal response to organized crime. And they came back with a conclusion of uh, the conclusion that organized crime will always thrive if society persists in the prohibition of gambling and drugs. And yeah, that for me was a very significant, a fairly obvious conclusion. But you yeah, you know, we're not allowed to think like that. Nixon's uh, Nixon's um, one of Nixon's men, Eagle Crow, ordered all of the documents of this report to be destroyed, except in his papers, he didn't bother destroying his own copy. So that's how how I was allowed to see that. But uh, it's almost you know it's a truism really. If you're going to prohibit drugs, you're going to have a big organized crime problem on your hands because it just increases the profits that corrupt people can make from, from the drug trade. Do you think it's a problem that they don't actually want to end? I think there are lots of careers at stake. If it suddenly ended, you know, what would the DEA do? <laughs> drug Enforcement Administration do? So that they've got a, a career interest in saying, essentially, we're, we're, we're the men and women in white hats, and you've got to give us the powers to get the men and women in black hats. Um, and it's as, almost as simple as that. They, they, they've got a career interest in, in uh, distorting evidence about the fight against the drug trade. 
in various ways, you know, like um, magnifying the um, the amount of um, profitability. You know, the, the you know the street value using street value instead of value. They say street value of, and it's a gigantic number. You know that that sort of. If they've got career interests in perpetuating, and I, you know you can't blame them away. It's it's their career. You know they they've got mortgages and the rest of it. Um, so, um, but there are too many people invested in uh, you know the war on drugs. There's, there's the expansion of the prisons in America. You know you have local local localities you know bidding to have prisons put in their areas so that they can um because uh, so, it brings money into the, the locality you know you've got so many people invested in the prison industrial complex the um, drug abuse industrial complex that it's very hard to see i think there are you know there, i think that the situation in oregon is positive perhaps it's got a long way to go i think um you always got to work out some kinks. You always got to work out a couple of kinks. Yeah, that's right. But um, but the idea in, in Canada also, I think the um, Prime Minister Trudeau said, uh, you know, we've got to stop um, putting people, putting profits in the pockets of traffickers. And uh, that means uh, legalizing drugs and regulating them and controlling them, but not... Um, not drastically increasing the profitability in trading in dangerous substances. When it comes to your work on organized crime and kind of what's one thing that you learned that might you might towards the end, I guess, where you're at now compared to when you first started researching organized crime, what's one thing that kind of shocked you or changed your mind? I think right at the beginning, I, I was... Um, still a believer in the idea that uh, essentially the world is divided between the good guys in white hats and the bad guys in black hats. You know, that's uh, I, the TV programs that I watched at the time, the ones about gangsters, the untouchables, you know, the government were the good guys and the uh, the gangsters were the bad guys. And it was a simple world. I, think, I, I remember being shocked when I, I saw, I looked at the careers, the politicians who had gained political capital out of being um, racket busters, you know, anti-organized crime. Um, and and I, I was shocked when I started to see that Thomas E. Dewey in New York in the 1930s wasn't such a crusader as the newspapers and films, et cetera, um, made, out, made him out to be. I, I was shocked about that and shocked about sort of more recent folk who I probably won't mention on this uh, podcast you know i'm, I'm sh shocked that it, it's a career vehicle for, for quite a few politicians a career ve uh, vehicle for harry anslinger of the federal bureau of narcotics and obviously j, j. Edgar hoover he um, he used the fear of organized crime after the denial thing from 1963 he didn't deny he just said it's a cosa nostra run organized crime in america but he said that and it resulted in an increase in FBI resources to um, try and combat illegal gambling, which failed totally. Um, so I, I would just recommend a, a commission that looks at the 
looks at different industries and how they are impacted by organized criminal activity within these industries and within these businesses and has a you know, different paradigm, paradigm for controlling organized crime in America. But that's not likely to happen. With Hoover, I just look at one man should not have all that knowledge or power. It just sim- like everybody looking up to you to be the cure all and this, um, I mean, immense amount of information he had on so many people. It's like, it's hard not to think that you can't use at one point that as leverage where I'm just like, I mean, nobody should have either wiretaps, any of that. There's just certain things you shouldn't know because it's a private conversation, but it's that curiosity aspect of things that makes it probably one of the most corrupting. I think so. But I think it's with Hoover, I think you've got to bear in mind that he had bosses the president was his boss. The attorney general was his boss. And they let him, you know, they had something to gain by, you know, they, they liked the information that he might share with them. But also look at Southern senators. You know, they were, uh, Hoover asked for extra money every year, and they were amongst the vanguard of Hoover supporters. And they, and they were the people that made the laws. And... Um, so it wasn't just Hoover. There was a kind of corrupt environment, really, that, uh, uh, that he was a, a all effective bureaucrat to see which way the wind was blowing. So he just saw the way the wind was blowing and uh, gave powerful people what they wanted. Until Nixon came around. Then when he you know, asked his FBI to look into something and Hoover said no, Nixon tried to create his own FBI. Absolutely, yeah, and and it all came unstuck, (laughs) (laughs) which is at least a happy note. (laughs) Michael, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, man. I I appreciate the time you gave me to talk about organized crime um, and your work as well, too, and just educate me a little bit more on it. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Uh, If you have a Twitter, a website, any books you'd like to promote? Um, I, I wrote a book called Organized Crime in American Power in 2001. And um, I've just rewritten it, uh, revised it a lot, actually. So that should be coming out next year from the University of Toronto Press. So uh, that, that, that's, that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, well, that's what I've just finished working on. I'm, at the moment, I'm working on a book called uh, Jumping Jim Crow and the Organization of Crime in America. And I'm looking at how southern states became a kind of a solid block after the Civil War, worked together, and uh, Democratic senators got voted in you know, year after year, um, became powerful in the Senate committees, and crafted the laws that America is still operating by. Um, so so I'm, I'm looking at that. So, But organized crime in American power is, is probably my main book. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. Like I said, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.